Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. I got a big smile on my face because this is another special episode. Uh, it's live, so some of you guys are listening live. And I have with me Dr. Graham Oppie and Dr. Michael Humer. And we're going to be talking about whether or not souls exist and particular. Uh, we're also going to be talking about Dr. Humer's argument for reincarnation. I'm really excited about this uh, this conversation. I say conversation because it's not really like a formal debate or anything like that. It's going to be conversational. Um, and I'll be kind of moderating, maybe too much for some of you, maybe not enough for others, but it's my channel. So sorry, guys. Um, we will be doing about an hour, hour 15-ish of conversation and then maybe half hour or so of questions. So if you guys have questions... Uh, go ahead and leave those in the live uh, comment, live chat, and uh, I'll give priority to super chats. No guarantee we're going to get through all the super chats or anything like that. So if we don't cover yours, um, please consider that just a, a donation to the, the Pensies channel. Thank you. I'm really excited. So um, if you could keep them on topic, that's keep the questions on topic. That's probably better. Don't go too crazy on us, but uh, you know we'll see. It's it's up to them whether they want to answer it or not. So. Um, Without further ado, let's just jump in and I'll pull in Dr. Oppie and Dr. Humor. <clears throat> well, thank you guys so much for, for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, likewise. So before we jump in, I just want to give a, a huge thank you to both of you. Both of you guys are, are as the audience will know, um, great philosophers, and uh, especially in the, in the academic realm. You guys have published a lot of uh, high-class work. But then both of you also do a lot of public philosophy. And you, you're you go on a lot of YouTube channels and, and not even gigantic ones all the time. And so I just really appreciate you guys and a lot of the audience. Um, we've learned a ton from from both of you guys. So thank you for for all you do and, and giving us so much of your time and then giving us your time tonight too. Yep, you're welcome. It's been fun. Awesome. Well, um, the pieces that 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 I have in mind tonight are um, a critical notice of J.P. Moreland's consciousness and the existence of God by uh, Dr. Graham Oppie, and that's in the European Journal for Philosophy of Religion. Also, his consciousness, theism, and naturalism in debating Christian theism, and then uh, two pieces by Dr. Humor: disembodied souls or people too. I believe that's still forthcoming. Is that right, Dr. Humor? Yeah. Would you, do you know the name of the book offhand? Uh, I don't know. Uh, it had something to do with extreme philosophy, That's but right. they might change the name. Okay. All right. And then, uh, existence is evidence of immortality. And, uh, I'm, I'm just so excited. So let's, let's <laughs> so go. So we're we're going to go in. Um, the, the, the title is, um, do souls exist? And so we're going to say, look, if, if the mind is immaterial, that's what we mean by soul. So we're going to go over some, arguments for the immateriality of the soul or reason to think that substance dualism is true. We'll use all these interchangeably. Um, so Dr. Humor, maybe I'll start with you. Um, well, actually, let me, let me go over naturalism really quick. Um, Dr. Oppie, you give this definition of naturalism. You say, quote, I take it that the core of naturalism is the claim that natural reality exhausts causal reality. There is no supernatural causation. That's it. Um, and so I just wanted to ask Dr. Humor under that definition, would you consider yourself a naturalist? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't actually know what natural means. Um, <laughs> uh, I like. I wouldn't say that the mind is supernatural. I think that. I guess supernatural means above nature, and I don't. 
really understand the sense of above there. So I, mm. it's not that I think that we're above physical objects or whatever. Um, although I think the mind isn't physical. Okay. Um, I, I assume Graham is going to say that I'm not a naturalist though. Um, well, perhaps I'm undecided about that because as you're kind of alluding to, the word natural is kind of got a lot of stretch in it. Right. I mean, we'd have to say a lot more, which we probably don't want to go into now, yeah. to nail down um, a meaning for naturalism. And if we did that, we would be using the word in a way that lots of other people don't. So. Yeah. Okay, that's good. I, I, I had that as crossed off my thing just in case we got in a quagmire. But you guys avoided it perfectly. So that's great. <laughs> um, well, Dr. Humer, I want to start with, um, with qualia first. Uh, you, you give qualia as an argument or maybe some arguments from qualia for thinking that that the mind is immaterial can you uh can you help us out why why does qualia what is qualia first and then yeah. why think that it leads to substance dualism uh yeah so you know qualia are well frequently said to be uh what it's like to have a mental state mm -hmm. it's supposed to be a property that a mental state has and that property is uh, you know what it's like so you know this comes from thomas nagel's article what is it like to be a bat where he says the fact that an organism is conscious means that there is something it is like to be that organism. So, you know, like you think intuitively, there's nothing that it's like to be a rock, but there's something that it's like to be a bat, for mm -hmm. example, because bats are conscious beings. And actually it's some, it's an interesting question and something unknown to us, what it's like to be a bat, because, you know, they navigate by echolocation. So, they have information that's like the information we have when we look at things, but they're getting it by their ears. So what is that like? So <laughs> anyway, okay. So there's like, you know, there's some character characteristic of the experience that's sort of like the, you know, an inherently first person, whatever, <laughs> first person nature. And, um, and that's, you know, and it's, it's this thing that, you know, intuitively you think you would only, able to understand it if you have had similar experiences so like we don't know what it's like to be a bat because we've never had that experience um and then okay yeah so um and what does this have to do with you know physicalism um it's hard to explain what qualia are you know in physical terms like mm. this doesn't sound like a physical property at least it's not it's not what I would think the word physical referred to, yeah. right? Like, sort of like feeling a certain way. Uh, and Nagel's article is, you know, very interesting, of course, very famous, like justly famous. Because, um, you know, like one of the things he talks about is um, he compares other cases in which there's a reductionist account of something. So like there's a reductionist account of heat. And he says, you know, when you explain the nature of heat, you don't have to explain the feel of it. Hmm. Like, right. And, you know, that's good because I, when they say, oh, there are these molecules that are moving around fast and like that's what heat is, um, you're like, wow, that doesn't seem like that's what it is. But like, it's OK because you don't ha you don't have to explain the feel of it because the feel of it isn't part of the phenomenon. The feel of it is the effect that the real external phenomenon produces in your mind. Right. So that's why the theoretical reduction doesn't have to explain that. But if you're trying to explain qualia, no, the feel of it is the phenomenon. Yeah. So you can't say, oh, we don't have to explain that part because that's just an effect that the phenomenon produces on your mind. Right. Yeah. Okay. So 
And then, you know, Nagel says, and, you know, justly, like, we just don't, we don't, like, have a conception of how you could give a reductionist account of qualia. Yeah, that's good. Well, uh, Dr. Rappi, do you, I, I thought I read somewhere that you don't believe in con uh, qualia. Okay, so let's add a little bit more to the story. So I want to talk about a particular thought experiment, the one mm. that Frank Jackson is really famous for, yeah. um, the, the, the neuroscientist in the black and white room. So the way that this, I mean, and this, this story for many people kind of brings out the difficulties in giving any kind of, I mean, say, physicalist account of qualia, though whether I'm a physicalist is kind of open to debate. That's yeah. something that we'll come to in a bit. Um, so, so Jackson asks us to imagine a, a very well-equipped um, I'll, I'll say neuroscientist, but we're to imagine that they're enclosed in a room where everything's in black and white. There's no colours. Um, where you, you kind of imagine a, a way difficulties like what if she takes a scalpel to herself or something like that. Um, we're supposed to just pretend that that doesn't happen, right? So, yeah. so all of her all of her visual experience is in black and white. and But we suppose that she's very well equipped and she actually uh, is so well equipped as a scientist, a physicist, that she knows everything there is to know about the physical state of the universe everywhere at all times. Um, so she's got exhaustive physical knowledge. We don't, maybe we don't have to make it quite that extensive, but we may as well for the sure. purposes of the thought experiment. So, um, so there's Mary in the black and white room. She knows all this physical stuff. So she knows everything about the physics of her brain. Um, she knows everything about the physics of perception. She knows everything that you might think there is to know about colour vision. Nonetheless, when she leaves the room and she looks at a ripe tomato for the very first time, something happens to her uh, that gives her new knowledge because despite all the knowledge that she had, she didn't know what it was like to look at a red thing until she left the room. And so the thought is that this shows that whatever we're going to think about the knowing what it's like for something to look red, it's clearly not going to be a physical property mm. um, because we assumed from the beginning that she knew everything there was to know about the physical properties. Okay, so I think that's a fair presentation of the yeah. thought experiment. So what do I think about this case? Um, so... My preferred view about the mind is very similar to Jack Smart's. So I'm a kind of old-fashioned identity theorist, roughly. So I think that, um, for example, perceptual states are largely, I mean, I'll, I'll ignore details about the kind of sort of relations to environmental history, environment, social relations and so on and just focus on the, the kind of brain throughout perceptual states are largely states of the brain now what what the kind of interesting question here is if we're thinking about states as physical states of the brain 
are there states that you can only know about fully if you're in them, right? So can you only know the kind of experiential dimension, as you might put it, of um, having uh, the, you know, looking at a red thing by being in the state of looking at a red thing or not, right? So the, here's a question, right? Is there some way that you could know about, from a physicalist point of view, about what it's like to look at a red thing, except by being in the state of looking at a red thing? Right? So there's two ways you could go here, right? Thinking about Mary. One thing is that you might think, look, while she's in the room, so long as she's equipped with um, enough surgical skill and knowledge and so on, she might be able to put herself into a state. She won't actually be looking at a red thing, but she'll be able to give herself, as it were, hallucinations of red things. And she'll be able to know what it's like because she's been able to put herself into that state. If she can't do that, then there's a kind of limitation on her because she can't occupy a certain state. That means that she will learn something when she leaves the room. Either way, it seems that this is perfectly consistent with the idea that the perceiving a red thing is a purely physical state and that knowing what it's like for something to be red is also a purely physical state. So that's going to be the kind of way that I want to respond to the Jackson thought experiment. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Humer, do you, do you think that, uh, is there a significant difference between Nagel's, uh, what it's like for a bat? Is, is that the same? Are they both uh, relevantly similar knowledge arguments? Well, uh, I mean, they're both appealing to qualia. Um, I mean, you know, Nagel makes this point, which, um, I guess is not in Jackson's article that I remember about, so, you know, like comparing other theoretical reductions and, you know, saying there's a disanalogy. Um, Can I say something about that? So, yeah. I mean, the heat case might look favorable, but compare um, lightning and electrical discharge, right? I mean, there, the kind of qualia question just doesn't arise for that kind of reduction. I mean, well, there, you know, there's like, there's the look of the lightning, right? Which, yeah, but, 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 but we're not interested in that. Yeah. Well, right. But that, I mean, that's why the theoretical reduction is okay. Right. So like, you don't explain the look of lightning <laughs> because right. we don't care. But in the case right. of qualia, you can't say, oh, we don't care. Right, but, the, but, but, but as I see it, the kind of issue here is whether we think that there are certain states, physical states, that you can only know what they're like by being in them. Yeah. Right. And well, that's perfectly, that's perfectly, it seems to me that that's a perfectly consistent position for a, uh, you know, a physicalist man. like Smart, assuming that Smart was a physicalist. I mean, he was certainly an identity theorist for him today. Well, uh, I mean, I'm not sure that that's an issue. Uh, sorry? I'm not sure that that's the issue, uh, i.e. whether there are states that you can only know by being in them. Uh, so, like, I mean, I'm not sure that that's what the dualist is saying, right? So, I mean, um, it might be it might be true that you can only know what it's like to see red by seeing red or hallucinating red. It might be true, but I don't think that's the essential point. So, you know, like, think about um, Hume's missing shade of blue, right, where, like, you know, you've seen some other shades of colors. There's a particular shade of color that you haven't seen, but you can 
imagine it because you've seen other other colors in the spectrum. So, you know, like maybe that's possible, right? But I mean, I I took it that the point was that it's possible to not know what one of these mental states is like, even though you know all the physical properties of it. And then that's right. that like isn't one of the physical properties. So, so it's so so I'm not sure how that doesn't fit with what I suggested, right? It's possible for you not to know um, what it's like to be in certain kinds of physical states if you've never been in them. So it's possible for you to know to not know what it's like to be red, even though you know everything else about um, the physical properties. This is just for the physical properties, and there's a constraint on it. Right. Uh, wait. Because I mean, we we just said at the beginning that Mary knows all the physical facts, but there's this question about whether she really does or not. Right. You can't just stipulate okay. it. Right. Uh, so so if this way of thinking, if it, if it turned out to be true that there are some physical facts that you can only know by being in certain kinds of physical states, then there's no mystery about the fact that she doesn't know them because we've prevented her from being in those states. We, you know, oh yeah. So, so you'd have to say, so you'd have to say that Mary can't know all the physical facts in the locked room, right? Yeah. Because there's some that I think, I think Tim Crane goes for that route too. Yeah. Uh, but then I that's mean, not the thought experiment, right? The, well, I mean, this no, makes but, well, me feel like I've lost my grip on what physical facts means. Right. So that, like, I took it that if you're claiming that, you know, this is a physical fact, you mean, you know, it's like one of these things about the um, locations of the particles and their arrangement and their mass and charge. And whatever. I, okay, so so now that's good, because now we come down to this question about whether I'm a physicalist or not, because um, so, so I'm certainly not um, thinking that there's a reduction of all properties to microphysical properties. And some people who are physicalists want to go that way. So um, I describe myself as a naturalist. And maybe once I tell you what my view is, you'll think, well, you're just not a physicalist at all. Well, right? Dr. Oppie, so, can, can, can so, you use the, the type token distinction too? Like, are you a, are you a type? Uh, um, are you so, in for type so or token? That, yeah. So, so, that's, theorist. Yeah. So, so that's a fair question. Um, I think neither in the kind of way that Lewis opts for neither in man ah. paint and Marsh's Martian paint. So you have a kind of restricted um, type identity. So there's a kind of, you know, what it's like to see red for humans or something like that. It's, but it's not what it's like to see red full stop. Um, but okay. maybe I'll go back to the, so I think of the, the, the universe as, um, being, I don't know, we can think about the universe as having content at a whole lot of different scales. You can think of them as length dimensions. So we can think about if you if you could only see the universe at a very small level, right? You could you could kind of perceive it somehow. Oh, it's not you, so you're very small. You're on the kind of scale of the things that you're looking at. And we're down at the level of the quarks. And you think about the kind of, um, I'll, I'll say properties. I'm tempted to talk about predicates, but and, and, but 
let's just say properties, right? So the properties of the, that you need in order to describe what you can see down there is a kind of very narrow range of um, properties that are all couched in the language of kind of um, microphysics. Bump up a few levels in the scale to say the level of molecules um, or maybe a bit bigger, I don't know, proteins or something like that. And now when we start talking about the properties of things at this level, there'll be some new predicates that we need. Um, we won't be able to just use the, the I mean, the, these molecules have properties that quarks and electrons simply don't have. And, and so this is the kind of important part. I don't think that there's any way of um, defining the properties at the higher scale in terms of the properties at the lower scale, even in principle, right? So that there's an autonomy of the, I'll say, suppose we're now at the level of the chemical, maybe that's not right, but at the scale of the chemical. I'm trying to not use the word level, I'm trying to stick with the word scale, right? At the scale of the chemical. Um, and this sort of is true at, other scales as well. So when you get to the scale at which we exist, uh, there's a whole lot of properties that are properly attributed to us that molecules don't have and um, that quarks don't have. And when you move up to the very, very biggest scales, we go back to, I mean, it's not the same properties at the micro scale, but it's just some physical properties, the only properties that are kind of attributable to the universe at really large scales turn out again to be, it's just that they're properties that belong to cosmology rather than to the physics of the very small. Are, are those, uh, are those like an emergent properties then? So I, I don't like the word emergent, right? Because that kind of suggests that there's a privileging for yeah. uh, things at the lower level. Whereas I'm stepping away from this kind of privileging idea altogether. <clears throat> Right, so okay. so I don't I don't think of this as emergence. I just so think of it as a kind of um, scale independence. So when it, when it comes to the mind, do you go in for something like like Davidson's anomalous monism? Then no, I'm an identity theorist, right? But that's a that's not a cross scale identification, right? It's, okay. You've got two things on the same scale. Right. And so when people talk about reduction, they often talk about levels and they think that the most fundamental things are going to sit at the bottom level. Mm -hmm. Right. So there are there are some people who've kind of pushed back against that kind of way of thinking. Um, so, for example, I know John Hiles written quite a bit where he's sort of attacking the idea that there are levels of reality. And my thinking seems to converge with John's in various ways. And this is one of them. Okay. Yeah, Dr. Humer, uh, what do you make of that? Uh, I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was sounding like the theory of emergence until he said that he didn't like the word emergence. Right. That's what but, I, yeah. but I wonder, I wonder if uh, it's actually substantively is the theory of emergence, but you just don't like the term. So, 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 so it might be, it depends. It depends. Um, what, I mean, I, I'm not that familiar with what people have written about emergentism, so I would want to go and look to see whether it fits. Yeah. So here's one thing that I think um, is true, and maybe emergentists all accept this as well, but think about the space that that I occupy, me, the kind of the organism. 
and think about what happens if you look at different scales just within the volume of space that I occupy. If you go down to the, um, the microphysical level, all you will find there are quarks and electrons, right? There are no, and those things don't have proto-consciousness or you know, proto-mental properties or anything like that. And as you move up through the scales, you'll find, all you'll find are things that have chemical properties or biological properties or whatever, as you go up and down the scales. So I don't know, maybe emergencies think that too. I don't know. Yeah. Well, do you get to qualia? I think that's Dr. Humor's, uh, that's, that's one of the points. Like, do, do you believe in qualia? At some point, does it, I, I can't, I don't know what else to say besides emerge, but does it come forth? So, so that depends on whether we stick with the, what it's like. So suppose, think about um, the ability to tell what something, what color something is just by looking at it, right? Um, that's presumably when she's in the, the black and white room, Mary just doesn't have that ability because you can't have that ability unless you've seen some red things and some yellow things and some orange things, leaving aside the hallucination route or you know, messing with your brain or whatever. Um, so I don't think of their, their aqualia if those are kind of distinctively mental things or substances or something like that. But I'm prepared to go along with the idea that, the, that there are certain skills that we have that depend upon our having been in certain kinds of states so that we know what it's like to be in those states. Maybe that's enough to commit me to qualia. I don't know. Yeah. I'm really curious, Dr. Human. What, what do you, what do you make of that? Well, uh, I mean, so I, I don't think that we merely have skills, right? So I, you know, when, no, when Mary learns what it's like to see red, um, so it's true that she, maybe she requires a new skill for like identifying tomatoes and stuff. Um, that's, that's true. But also there's something else, which is that she knows a fact, which is that seeing red is like this, right? So, so right? like you can well, imagine different ways the world could have been like, there are different ways that seeing red could have been like, or, you know, it, it could have been different qualitative characters of that experience. Yeah. And when she sees the tomato for the first time now, like her evidence rules out a bunch of alternatives. Right. So, so, so I'm not sure whether that's different. From, I mean, it sounded different, mm -hmm. but maybe it's the same as what I said, that she knows what it's like to see red. And that's a kind of knowledge that you can only have by being in the state of looking at something that's red, you know, set yeah. up in the right kind of way. But, yeah. but so she used that ability, I think, if I'm tracking Dr. Humor, um, she used that ability to see red that she gained to then come to that that phenomenal fact of red. And now, like, she has that, right? She Now she can remember what it's like to see red and such, right? Like, does, yeah. that, does that seem right? So it's not just the ability. The ability was used to acquire a phenomenal fact. Yeah. I mean... Well... Well, you might think it was the other way around, right? She had yeah. to know what it was like in order to have the ability, right? Yeah. It's yeah. Well, the kind of activation of the yeah. ability requires the knowledge. You have to know what it's like. Yeah. I mean, so you know, my interpretation of the case is, okay, she looks at the tomato and then she has a sensation, which we call the sensation of red, and she's, you know, directly aware of it because, you know, she's a 
self-conscious being. <laughs> and she's aware of it having this uh, particular quality of character. You know, uh, she simultaneously formed the concept of that because like she wouldn't even have the concept without having experienced it. But also now she knows that that quality of character is experienced by people who are looking at red things and not some other quality of character. So she's ruled out a set of possible worlds and, you know, ruled in the set of possible worlds. So that's a proposition. Right. And also like, you know, there's a property that the experience has, hmm. which, you know, which she didn't know that had, it had before. And so, yeah. So, and, and it looks like that property doesn't look like it's a physical property. If you say it is a physical property, I need to hear more about how that's a physical property. Right. So I tried to tell the story about why I think it's a physical property before. Um, so, uh, but maybe, I mean, sorry, we had this disagreement about whether it's physical, right? It's, 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 and, and sorry, about whether I'm a physicalist, right? Because on the kind of emergentist view, it, if that's what my position is, it's not clear that I'm saying it's a physical property, right? Um, but it's, it seems to me that it's a, that if we're going to think about what it's a, what sort of property is, it's a, it's going to be something like a neural property. Um, yeah. So I, I want to move on to intentionality, but before I do, I wanted to ask uh, each, each of you a question about dogs, which I think could, could clear some stuff up or maybe not in Dr. Humor's case, but Dr. Oppie. So if you were, a, if you were a type type uh, uh, brain identity, mind brain identity theorist, if you went in for the, the type uh, identity theorist uh, thesis, then a dog and you would not have the same red uh, qualia experience, right? Because it wouldn't, that the type would be a physical thing in your brain. And I think this is what the, uh, this is what the multi multiple realizability argument against uh, identity theory of the type variety goes, goes with. Yeah. If, you were, if you were a token theorist, it seems like that's functionalism to me. And not identity theory, right? Like there's a type that can be multiply realized in the dog or in you, and they're, they're, as long as they're playing the same functional role. So when it comes to you and and maybe my dog, do you guys both see red? Okay, so one one of the things that you said was is is really quite historically interesting, which is the question about whether identity theory and functionalism are compatible consistent yeah. or not so yeah. there was a kind of division of opinion in the 60s between kind of north american theorists like putnam who thought that they were inconsistent and um antipodean theorists like armstrong who thought mm -hmm. that they were perfectly consistent uh and uh interestingly lewis sided with armstrong on this question again makes sense that australian putnam. connection but there. but 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 he did it, I think, by slightly changing the, the way that he was thinking about it because he wasn't thinking that there's, there's a single type here that everything um, has. He was thinking that maybe types would be restricted by kinds of entities. So okay. maybe, maybe um, dog colour vision really is a slightly different type of thing from human yeah. color vision. But he was assuming that amongst humans there was a there was a common time. Okay. So saying red, for example. So maybe it could go along with like natural kinds or something like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah there's just a lot of ways to cash it out. 
Um, Dr. Humor, if, and I, maybe I shouldn't have picked dogs because I think dog, they say dogs are colorblind, but let's just stipulate the dogs aren't colorblind right now. So I don't look too stupid, but, um, Dr. Humor, you, um, to have a qualia experience, you use qualia in order to argue for substance dualism. Does that mean if you and my puppy can both see red, that my puppy also has a soul? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, and, um, anything with mental states has a mind. Okay. And, you know, and like the arguments that your mind isn't physical would yeah, obviously also apply to the mind of anything that has a mind. So I mean, okay. not like some of the minds are physical and some of them aren't. Really. That's right. That's right. Because I think Descartes was like, no, they're just automata, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, so he's denying that it has the experience at all. So, okay. Okay. Then it would okay. be purely physical, but. Gotcha. But if you think yeah, they do have the experience. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, anything to, to tie up before we jump on to intentionality? Uh, we could spend the rest of the time on qualia here, but I want to cover some more. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, we, we can move on. Yeah. And we can come back to maybe a, a cumulative, uh, throw them all together and see what sticks. Um, so we got intentionality. Uh, Dr. Human, you, you say that intentionality is another uh, uh, peculiar uh, property of mental states um, yeah. that is it, is it evidence for this was something i wanted to ask you about is it is it evidence for substance dualism or does it logically entail substance dualism or does it um, point to you know what what, what do you what's the strength of the that, evidence i mean um like the uh you know, the structure of the reasoning was that these things are evidence for dualism uh so like um you know intentionality and qualia um but they don't distinguish between substance and property dualism. So like these okay. are just evidence that there is a different kind of property because qualia are apparently a non-physical property and intentionality also. Uh, and then how you get from dualism general to substance dualism is you have to look at the problem of personal identity. Yeah. Um, but I take it that once you become some kind of dualist, it's not, it's not that much <laughs> further to go to say, you know, it's substances and not only properties. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah. In what way does it support um, what way does intentionality support dualism? Um, I guess, so like my feeling is, uh, I guess I think that it's metaphysically impossible for intentionality to be physical. Uh, I guess I shouldn't say that I'm a hundred percent certain of that though. Hmm. So I guess I would say it inconclusively support, I guess I would say it's evidence. Okay. But like in the way that intuitions are evidence, I guess. Hmm. Um, Okay. You just brought up intuitions and that's another thing we could spend the rest of the time debating definitions, <laughs> but yeah. Um, well, okay. So, so we have, we have an int intentionality. Wait, um, wait, does everybody, does everybody in the audience know what intentionality is? In, in oh stuff? yeah. Hit us. Yeah. But I, they probably do. If they listen to my stuff, uh, okay. I do a lot of philosophy of mind type stuff, but if you, if you wanted to real briefly, um, yeah, a lot right, of them are yeah, master students. So yeah, it's the, it's the property of being about something. So like when you have a thought, your thought is about something. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a weird property. Like, so it like doesn't sound like that's a physical property. Like, mm. you know, physical properties sound like you know things like the mass or the shape or size or whatever. And like, property of referring to something doesn't sound physical. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, um, let me let me just follow up really quick and, and ask about like the. I, I think we probably talked about this before, but what about like the the rings in a tree? Uh, if you go in for like a, a type of information theory and you say it looks like those rings in the tree are about the age of the tree and yet they're they're physical. Yeah, yeah, that totally doesn't seem to me like they're, they're about anything. Okay. They're just rings. 
Okay, you know, I mean, I, the best I can figure is that people are sort of like projecting. Like when you see the rings, you take the rings as evidence for something. Yeah. Yeah. So like you have a mental state that represents the tree as a certain age because of okay. that. I think, like I think Cyril calls it derivative. Yeah, it's like derivative intentionality, but not intrinsic. Um, yeah, well, Dr. Oppie, what do, what do you make of all this? So I think that um, most people think that intentionality is less of a problem for physicalists than hmm. sort of consciousness and qualia. Uh, and part of the reason for that, I think, is that there are still lots of people who kind of side with the Australians and think that you can be an identity theorist and a functionalist, and they think that kind of from functionalism, you get a reasonable account of sort of intentional attitudes like belief and desire and so on. Aboutness really isn't as challenging as consciousness. That would be the one comment that I'm inclined to make here. Maybe that's part of the reason why Mike's less inclined to think that it's kind of conclusive. Well, um, consideration. If if you go in for identity theory, then the mental state. Would you say the mental state is the the brain state? Yeah, roughly. That's so. so then, theory. so then that brain state, then you do have something that's physical that's about something. Is that you? You would say the physical yeah, things sure. can be about things. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, a physical state can have representational content if it happens to be a state of. Um, an organism like us, right? Okay. There's no, there's, I mean, there, there's lots of different projects um, in philosophy of mind that have tried to spell out um, physicalist or naturalistic ways of getting content, you know, teleological theories of content. Oh, yeah. there's all kinds of stuff yeah. there. I don't think we want to go down that. Yeah. Yeah. Hole yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, Graham is, of course, correct that, like, you know, in philosophy of mind, people people are more happy with um, reductionist accounts of intentionality than they are with reductionist accounts of qualia. And I guess um, I have somewhat of the same feeling. Like, I don't I don't feel happy about either of them, but the, like, reductionist accounts of qualia seem, like, more counterintuitive. <laughs> like, it just seems, like, more obvious that that's not what qualia is. You know, you can say things that sound sort of vaguely plausible about what intentionality might be, though I don't ultimately buy them. Yeah, it's a relation between two, yeah, Relata or something like that. Um, well, let's let's jump on to free will because that might be a little bit more spicy. Um, and, and again, Dr. Humer, you and I have talked about this on our episode, but um, you, you talk about, uh, I think you might mention even libertarian free will and um, that that <clears throat> is uh, another... Another feature of the mind, which uh, points to it being uh, um, immaterial, but uh, I know Dr. Oppie is not going to buy that one. Um, so, actually, um, uh, Dr. Humor, let me let me just pass it to you. So, can you just fill us in about free will here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, so you know, I found out that Oppie is a compatibilist, so mm -hmm. uh, we might have to argue about that. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I don't know it. Lo it looks like we have free will, and it looks like that's not compatible with determinism. And, you know, you start thinking, like, how can you explain, you know, what this free will thing is? And then assuming that you don't want to just reject it. Okay, I guess we'll just assume that. So, um, you know, like, okay, and, you know, why, why do I think it's not compatible with determinism? Um, you know, like, I, I have examples like this. So, okay, so, you know, let's say a student comes to me near the end of the semester and says, 
hey, Mr. Humor, because, you know, students call you Mr. because <laughs> they, they don't know your title. Anyway, because that's what they call their high school yeah. teachers. Okay. All right. So, hey, Mr. Humor, how do I get an A in this class? And let's say I say something like, well, in order to get an A, you would have to have at least gotten an 87% average on the first four tests. And actually, your average was 75 now, what can the student infer from this? It looks like he can infer that he can't get an A, right? And mm -hmm. by the way, don't say that he could get an A by convincing me to change the grading scale or something like that, okay? Because just assume that what I said is true, that he would have to, you know, it's a necessary condition, he would have to have gotten 87% and he didn't. So then he can't get an A, okay? And what this illustrates is that if in order for you to do A, something would have to have happened in the past that did not happen and you can't do A. Okay, now if determinism is true, then in order for you to do anything different from what you actually do, stuff would have to have happened in the past, you know, going all the way back to the Big Bang, stuff would have to have been happening that didn't happen. That is not what happened, right? Yeah. And, you know, like the big, we would have to have been in a different state at the time of the Big Bang. And that, and that's not the case, so. So you can't do anything different from you, what you actually do. So it sounds like you don't have free will. Yeah, Dr. Rappi, what, what do you make of that? Okay, so I don't, I suspect that the world is not deterministic in the big scale, right? So it's not the case that um, the laws plus initial conditions, assuming that there's initial conditions, right? So assuming there's an initial state, determine everything that comes after. In particular, I suspect, though this is, admittedly it's controversial, but I think that the, there's quite a lot of indeterminacy at the kind of quantum level. So there's lots of chancy events. Uh, and the, at, say, right down there at the scale of you know, the quarks and electrons, there's quite a lot of chance down there. And some of the chance can kind of percolate up. There are way, in fact, um, if you if you want, assuming that there is quantum indeterminism and assuming that Geiger counters are sensitive to it, you can, taking as your kind of model, the dice man, you can be the quantum dice man or woman or whatever. You can be a, and use your um, quantum uh, dice to make your behavior both non-determined and um, unpredictable whenever you like, just by kind of sampling the indeterminacy that's there. Nonetheless, I think that at the level of um, organisms like us, there are lots of cases where, like over a period of deliberation, um, were you to kind of, if you had the ability to wind back um, a little bit the clock and run it again, you'd just get the same result over and over. There's a kind of, as it were, local determinism, which is um, vulnerable to various kinds of things. So when I assume that you run it again, I'm assuming that, for example, there isn't some sort of chance thing that plays differently and sends an intervener that's, you know, you, so that you end up getting 
struck by lightning before you finish the course of deliberation or whatever. But but there's it's kind of robust enough that it will support counterfactuals. So you know, were we to run it again, like in all in all nearby worlds, you'd get the same outcome. That gives you something that's not determinism. It certainly gives you something that's not vulnerable to anything like Van Inwagen's consequence argument. But it still gives you something that people who think about libertarian freedom probably aren't going to like because you know, set the circumstances exactly the same and across a very wide range of nearby worlds, you're just going to get the same result everywhere. There's a sense in which you actually can't do otherwise. It's not that there aren't really remote worlds, but there's... Right. So, so I'm inclined to be, to think that we don't, in, in a, any very strong sense, have libertarian freedom. Um, it's not, um, what, what you need is a kind of compatibilist conception of freedom. What it is to act freely is just to act on your normally acquired beliefs and desires in the absence of defeaters of various kinds. That's the kind of freedom we have. It's all the, kind, it's all the freedom that we need. Well, okay. so, Sorry, that's a little bit complicated, but that's the well, answer. I think I think we might be able to to get down to um, the the crux of the matter if we because I, uh, I I had this conversation with Dr. Humor and I said you know I'm I'm a compatibilist, um, but I believe in divine determinism and I still think I can have rational deliberation and interactionism because I'm a substance dualist. Um, I wonder if. To me, it seems like Dr. Oppie, like on uh, on a the physicalism is a problem, not necessarily the determinism, because your beliefs that you're acting on, even in a, in your compatibilistic freedom, aren't those beliefs produced by like non-rational forces, like the laws of physics, like the the neurochemistry? I, I, they don't seem like they're it's it's like rational laws, right? So, I mean, you. Go back to the what I said previously about scales. It comes yeah. back here, importantly. Okay. It's not that there's a determination of what happens at what what you see at higher scales by what there is at lower scales. So the the relationship isn't a, a unidirectional thing. So um, hmm. the when you're kind of down there at the level of the quarks and the electrons, you may see a whole bunch of quarks and electrons moving in a certain kind of way. The reason why they're moving that way is because I'm waving my arm around, right? It's not, uh, so it's not that I'm thinking that the but why are you, I guess, direction why are you of like, explanation of here, yeah. the direction of explanation here goes in one direction. Does it? Right. So, so the so you're right to point to the idea that there there, there are two different kind of determination worries. One of which is sort of past to future, and yeah. one of which is micro to to macro. And what I've tried to give is reasons for rejecting both of those worries. So there's like an interaction. There's an interactionism on your identity theory, such that like you're. I, I guess I just wonder. You're waving your hand around, and that's making the quarks do stuff. But what made you uh, raise your hand, wave your hand around? With, well, the, you know, the, the previous state, state of, which was state, state of my brain. But remember that you, you're not. This isn't determined by what happened at the Big Bang because there's lots of indeterminacy. Some of which, um, yeah, in the way that Geiger counters can cause the indeterminacy to percolate up. There are other ways that indeterminacy, indeterminacy so, can percolate. That's why up. I thought you were going with like an anomalous monism. Like, like once you get to this emergent level. 
there are no uh, laws determining the beliefs. Um, um, so, so I don't think that's right. Um, right. So, at any point in time, there, there'll be there'll be kind of laws of this kind. So long as there's no interventions from outside, this closed system will evolve in this way. Okay. Yeah, Dr. Hey, so, Hitter, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it sounded like you're um, proposing downward causation, right? And, you know, and I'm, uh, I'm happy with downward causation, but almost no physicalists are. So, yeah. so except I mean, downward causation, uh, I mean, you, the, I mean, maybe this is kind of like emergentism, I guess. I guess maybe that's the right label. Uh, yeah. Okay. Dr. I mean, Hemery, follow up? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, if we, if we found out that this was definitely true, um, dualists would declare victory. <laughs> so, well, I don't see why. Not substance dualists, because there's no... I mean, there's, yeah. there's no there's no mental substances anywhere in this story. Right? It's because it what, like what's happening at what's happening at the on yeah. on the human scale is just stuff that's happening in your brain. Yeah, no, I mean they yeah, you know, property dualists would declare victory. Yeah, it does. Um, it, it sounds like so, there's this higher level, the highest scale. Sorry, not level, but the highest scale seems like it. It could just be yeah, property dualism or like Hasker's uh, emergent dualism of some kind. So. So again, I'm not sure that I'm seeing that, but then that maybe that's because um, the the thing that I thought was important was kind of about natural rather than about the physical, and the people, um, not not you, but lots of people who are um, dualists want there to be kind of supernatural substances yeah that's why i wanted dr uh humor on because he doesn't have a, a bone to pick in this fight yeah 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 so you know like like yeah you know, i'm not totally sure what natural is but like yeah like i you know i don't i don't think god created us or whatever or like i don't know maybe there is a god maybe he did create us but that's not what i'm saying <laughs> you know? yeah. um right you know and like you know the the non-physical things are caused you know, and they have, they have physical causes, and they'll be caused according to laws. And, you know, they won't be caused according so, to magic. You know, so so I don't think they're non-physical. I mean, they have a, the the brain has. I mean, to go back to the the thought before about if you probe it at um, lower scales in the space that you occupy, you don't find anything except physical stuff that's conforming to physical laws. Right. So there's a certain sense in which. I am physical, right? That's the sense in which I'm physical. Oh well, I mean the stuff that the stuff that your body's made of is physical, and we can agree, we can agree on that, and we could disagree about whether there's some other substance, right? But uh, yeah, that's right. Know, but, we could disagree about whether there's some other substance, and but, perhaps yeah, but like the, the properties that you have are not all physical properties. That's what I was going to bring up, like like pain, especially if it's not if you if you're not going in for the type theory, right? Well, a restricted type theory, though, so it'll turn out to be neural. It's still it. Okay. Yeah, but the, but the, so so I th I mean I think I agree that the kind of important question is about the 
way in which, um, say, biological properties or psychological properties or whatever related to the physical properties, is there some definitional connection there? Is there some definitional connection in principle? Well, I just say no. And if that, if that's all that you want to say, then maybe we don't disagree about anything substantively. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we didn't, you know, we definitely disagree about the mental substance. I mean, yeah, so no, we definitely disagree about that. Um, well, Dr. Humer, do do mental states have spatial location? Oh, uh, I think not. Okay, because I know that's one that that yeah, Dr. Oppie would be committed to that, right? Yeah, and I, you know, like why why am I saying that? Well, it's just sort of intuitive. Like, okay, I say, you know, I have a thought, and you're like, where's the thought? Like, well. Like a question of where the thought is sounds to me kind of like a category mistake. Hmm. Like where's the number four? So, so that might be because you're mixing up the kind of occurrent versus dispositional um, vocabulary here. So where's, where's my perceiving happening? Well, I think I know where that's happening. I think that's happening in my brain. Yeah. Well, I, I know where the brain process is happening, but I don't know where the experience right. is happening. Right, but, but then I don't think there's any... There's, yeah. that's, you know, on my view, that's all there is going on, right? So, yeah. Well, maybe I can push, uh, Dr. Humor, if you don't know where the experience is happening, but um, I'm having this experience in my office, right? And I'm not, I'm not having experience on Mars. Yeah. And it's presumably because you know, like I'm located here. Yeah. And well, if I am, yeah. What do you make of that? Yeah. I mean, you're saying, you know, I is ambiguous. <laughs> Your body is located in, in there. And so, you know, I think it might just be like a confusion where you say like, because we have the word, the word that refers to your body and your mind, then you sort of like, you get confused into thinking that the mental states are located there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, uh, you know, you can ask other questions about the mental states, like, you know, what shape is it and what size is it? How big is my belief that Paris is in France and what shape is that? Like, that's, so that sound like so those are kind of odd questions to ask about states, though, like neural states, you're going to, and processes, questions like how big are they? Yeah. You feel like they're kind of category errors anyway. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure if they have size and shapes. I mean, like, well, I mean, if the thing is like, you know, it's a pattern of activation of neurons that might have a size and shape, right? Because <laughs> you could draw them. Yeah, you could you'd be looking textbooks, right? Well, at a, at a point in time, but the if, if you think about what it looks like over time and you think about how many different things are going on in your yeah. in I'll, I'll talk about it the way you want to in your mental life at any one time it may be very hard to pick out any bit of it and say, this bit is just uniquely the the, the seeing of the red rather than the seeing of the oh, yeah. shape of the thing or the seeing that it's got a boundary there and there's this other thing behind it or, you know, whatever. It, so it might be hard, but in principle, like that's the, uh, you know, the, the problem of vagueness or something, right? Like is there a, maybe epistemologically it's hard for us to pick that out, but do you think in principle there is a story uh, there's a, a matter of fact that this string would be from, from here, this neuron to this neuron would be uh, the thought or the experience 
even if we can't know it? So, so I doubt it. I doubt that okay. the, the story is going to, that the neurophysiological story is going to have that kind of simplicity. Okay. Okay. I, I wonder, um, it kind of brings up like, this wasn't part of uh, Dr. Humer's uh, arguments, but like the unity of phenomenal consciousness, where it seems like our consciousness is, is unified. And it seemed like maybe you're even making that point uh, just there, Dr. Oppie, that doesn't seem like we can just chunk off different parts of the brain and say there's one thing is that are, are you familiar with that argument and is it uh yeah it doesn't seem like it's going to be a problem though. okay uh as long as the brain because, is unified well because because we're familiar with doing maybe you want to call it abstraction or something focusing on some aspects of physical processes and just ignoring others that's yeah. a kind of familiar thing that we do. So I'm not sure that it's any more problematic when we're thinking about um, our mental lives than it is with any other sort of, you know, fluid flows or other complicated things that we might look at. Okay. Well, um, I thought I thought we could move. I'm not sure we made a, a ton of progress in moving either one of you at all, but um, that, that wasn't the goal. We are just to, to talk about it. But I, I wanted to broach uh, Dr. Humer's like arguments for the uh, infinite past. And um, and this does come into play with uh, your substance dualism and, and why you think uh, we exist now because we uh, have been reincarnated. Like the whole thing, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher it, but Dr. Humor, can you, can you lay that out for us? Uh, oh yeah. Uh, well, yeah. So I think, I think we talked about the reincarnation argument on a previous episode of yeah. your podcast. Yeah. So uh, you don't have so to go you, in too too much because the audience will be familiar, and if they're not, there's a whole episode on it. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, like here's the short version, right? So you know, suppose that people could only live once, then, and suppose also, as I'm assuming that the, the um, time is infinite, both in the past and in the future. Okay. So then, on those assumptions, what's the probability that you would be alive now, specifically? Um, looks to me like it's zero. Right. So, you know, out of all the infinite past, because, you know, like you should have been born at some previous time. And if you can only live once and that would have prevented you from being here now, um, you know, unless you are being born as a probability zero event, in which case you also shouldn't be here now. Right. And so, OK, but you are here now. So, you know, the theory that assigns zero probability to them um, is disconfirmed, right? Maximally disconfirmed. So it's not true that you can only live once or I'm wrong about the past being infinite. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so, so can I ask you just a question about, I mean, I, I want to focus on the past bit, but I want to ask you a question about this. Whatever happens now will be probability zero. So isn't your argument going to entail that we, <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not just a problem about your existence. It's about anything that happens that's happening right now. Uh, I, I don't think that everything has probability zero. <laughs> uh, no, that, that it should be happening right now. Given the infinite that's past, right now, given the infinite past and the infinite future, it's not just your existence, but your office, um, the oh, earth. No. Uh, um, uh, well, because, I mean, so my office, like you know, this might also recur right many times. Right? Yeah. So, so it can it can, and so there will be some, and so it exists for a certain period of time, and then and it recurs over and over again throughout the infinite history of the universe. So, 
you know, at any given time, there's a non-zero probability, right? It's a it's a non-zero proportion of the time that the office exists. Well, but, Dr. No, but if there was a problem about you sort of existing just yeah. once, there'll be the same problem about everything else. But every and, I mean, and everything guess, else doesn't have souls, right? That was that was your your point about needing a soul. But your office doesn't presumably doesn't so, have a soul. Right. So, I mean, you know, the argument might be, oh, look, you know, Humor's argument for reincarnation also implies that like uh, tables can be reincarnated, like this office can be reincarnated. Okay. And then, you know, like, is that bad? I don't know. <laughs> so, so I believe that uh, um, in one sense, that's true. Like there will happen over and over again, there will happen an office that's qualitatively like this. And yeah. yeah. Now, whether or not that counts as the same office, well, then, uh, you know, like you could have a debate about that. But I think that might just be a semantic question. Um, and so, like, if you don't if you don't think that the office can recur, that might be because you're just sort of like stipulatively defining it to not be the same office, no matter how similar it is. Right. But I think you can't just stipulatively define, you know, a future person to not be me. Right? Like, it's not a verbal question whether a future person is me or not. So, so I'm not clear about that. Why, um, what's the difference that matters here? Is it that you think that you kind of remember past lives, whereas the office doesn't? Yeah, I don't remember any past lives. <laughs> and uh, I know some people claim to remember past lives, but you know they're, they're probably wrong <laughs> or they might be hoaxes. Um, but anyway, um, no, I didn't like, I want, want you to have the intuition that, you know, for any person that exists at any time, like there's an objective fact about whether it's you or not, there's gotta be a fact about whether you exist at a time or not. You know, it's not just like a matter of decision. Like maybe this, this helps to, um, you know, sort of like pump your intuitions, right? So like, suppose you think it's just a verbal question, whether something counts as me. So then... Uh, you know, like I want to live longer, so I'm going to just try to get people to talk as if some person who's going to be born in the future is me. Like if I get them to talk in a certain way, that's going to make that person be me, and then I'm going to live longer. So like now I've got a super strong reason for trying to change the way people talk. And now, and you're supposed to think, no, that's not, that's not correct. <laughs> So, so, so that doesn't sound good, but I don't see why. What, what's wrong with the view, um, as far as this goes, um, of just thinking that those future things or those past things weren't me? It's just a fact of the matter, and the fact of the matter is that they're not. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, I mean, the point that I was getting at there was just that there's a there's a fact. It's not just a purely yeah. verbal question, which is different from you know, ordinary, like inanimate objects, where at, at least, you know, some have the intuition that there isn't a fact about uh, whether you have the same. Okay, so I, so I certainly don't have that intuition. I mean, it struck me the office and you were in the same boat. Yeah, I mean, so, but uh, like, do you think, do you think that it's obviously false that the office will occur again? Um, is, that, is, that, is, that bad, is that a bad uh, view? <laughs> So, well, maybe maybe we should go back and talk about whether the past is infinite or not at this point. Yeah. Um, and I, I doubt that anything 
is obvious, and that's kind of true in general in philosophy. But <laughs> um, so, on your view, the most probable view to have about the kind of shape of causal reality is that it's infinite in both directions. It's infinite in the past, and it's infinite in the future. Um, I think kind of going by, at least by the physics, the most plausible view is it's finite in the past and infinite in the future. And then, and this might be kind of curious, but I think the next most plausible view is that it's finite in both directions. And the kind of, the only view that's less plausible than yours is the one that has it infinite in the past and finite in the future, which I think is very hard to kind of Right, nobody thinks that. Get your head around. Yeah, no, I don't think there are many people who think that. Yeah. Um, so the, wh why do I think this? Well, uh, and, and also, and so, so that's one kind of question. And then there's this other question about recurrence. And I think that physics, right, right, the serious physics about the future tells seriously against that as well. Um, so... I mean, I guess part of it is just, it's kind of standard, the kind of most widely accepted view of Marx physicists seem to be finite past and infinite future. I mean, there are some who think that there's a multiverse. Um, maybe we can put that to one side and just focus on the kind of one universe view. If we go with the one universe view, then some people have thought maybe there could be cycling, expansion and contraction, but we seem to be pretty confident that there's not going to be another contraction. So uh, it, the kind of cycle of expansion and contraction is not looking good. And there's this other problem about entropy. The entropy doesn't decrease when you have a contraction. It goes on increasing. So it feels like every, every universe is going to start with maximum entropy and ours doesn't. So there's a bunch of reasons why... Um, the kind of finite past, infinite future looks better, I think. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, uh, so, I, you know, there, there are a bunch of things to comment on there. Uh, I don't know, like, okay, so, you know, does entropy always increase over time? Well, uh, you know, in our experience, yes. But, you know, every once in a while, entropy is going to decrease. <laughs> not not systematically, but, you know, just by chance, right? And um yeah, if you did like, you know, if you're in a um, if you're in a limited region of phase space, like you're guaranteed to repeat your initial conditions, right? Like just you know, just by chance, and um, it's you know, it's going to take a really long time, <laughs> um, but actually, you know, like the number of transitions from high to low entropy is equal to the number of transitions from low to high entropy if you have infinite time, right? Hmm. Um, so, so that's assuming that you kind of have um, finite cycling. But this is the other point I wanted to make is that on the kind of views of the future of the universe that, um, so, you know, there's a nice book by Adams and Lachlan about the likely future of the universe. And it goes kind of at a very big picture. It kind of goes like this. In about 10 to the 40 years, protons will decay. Um, after that, the only things that will form will be black holes. About 10 to 150 years from now, the last black hole will decay by Hawking radiation. Thereafter, the universe goes on expanding. All it contains is the odd blip of radiation, and it goes on expanding forever. And there's no – protons don't come back, never mind stars and people. Yeah. Right. And that's the kind of serious 
future as set i mean they're kind of yeah. you know, that that when you push the physicists that's the one that they go for so the kind of you know the the repetition thing just doesn't look good from that standpoint yeah, yeah. no uh yeah i mean i think i think there's just a bunch of things that we don't understand um so you know you know go, going back to the finite past okay because you know like I, I think the past is infinite well okay so but you know there there are these people who think the past is finite like it began 14 billion years ago at the time of the big bang and then you know i just find this an unsatisfactory theory and so okay so you know on this theory what happened uh the universe so 14 billion years ago there was the universe there was like a huge amount of matter and energy in a tiny region with um you know ridiculously low entropy right which you know okay and it was moving outward and that was just the first thing that happened for no reason and that and that's the theory and there can't be any explanation for why that thing happened because they're saying it's the beginning of time <laughs> so nothing could cause it okay i think that's an unsatisfactory theory and you know, like, so here's here's part of my illustration of how that's unsatisfactory. I'm going to give you a better theory. Okay, the better theory is the universe started in the year 1950. It popped into existence in 1950 in the state that it was in in 1950, just already like that. <laughs> you know, complete with everybody having false memories of you know past that never happened and everything. Okay, uh, and then just goes forward from there. And that explains all of the observations that we've made since 1950. Assuming you were born after 1950, explains all of your observations just as well, you know, just as much as the Big Bang Theory. And, uh, you know, you're like, oh, but this is super improbable that it would pop into existence in that state. Yeah, but like, that's just like the Big Bang posit that it just popped into existence. In fact, in the Big Bang Theory, it popped into existence in an even less probable state, right? Because like... You know, so, because we had, we had higher entropy in 1950 than we yeah. did in 14 billion BC, and higher entropy means like you know that's a more probable state. Yeah. So actually, you know, if you're going to pick a starting state for the universe, the 1950 state is way way more probable than the beginning. But, so right, but there's a problem with that um, argument. I mean, of, there there are various problems with it, but one is that 1950s obviously not the best choice that you could make there it's inferior to 1951 for example and in fact it's going to be inferior to right now right the universe just began right now that's yeah. going to be better um, but the problem is that that's an unstable theory because in a minute you'll want to shift the theory right so if you if if you want to be sort of consistent over time in your choice of a theory you're not going to pick any of those obviously skeptical scenarios right because <laughs> for anyone that you pick there are better ones that you'll want to pick tomorrow well uh, um i don't see this as saving the big bang i mean yeah, well, there's no there's no non-arbitrary starting point that comes after the Big Bang. No, but like this is not um, this is not an answer to the skeptic, right? <laughs> or you know, like so you're right. Like yeah, maybe the best theory is it appeared just now at this instant. Okay, and then you're like, oh, but you don't want to say that because if you say that, then you're going to change your view in a minute. How does that show that that's not the best view, right? 
like, okay, so then in a minute from now, the best theory is going to be that the universe just began at that time. So. Well, and, and wouldn't it wouldn't it only be a little bit more probable because it's only a few seconds difference be, uh, in, in in entropy, whereas nineteen fifty, yeah, yeah, the difference between not, entropy yeah. there and the the initial yeah, yeah. Big Bang is is much broader. Right. That's right. Yeah. And there's been, yeah. yeah but look, so, I mean, so, look, I'm, see, I'm not, I'm not actually advocating the 1950 theory. <laughs> you convinced me though. Dang I, it. Right. Uh, so I'm saying like, what's wrong with that is, you know, it's just, it's like, it's not a good theory to have the universe just start existing for no reason. Right. So like I'm rejecting all of the theories <laughs> Right. And so, also the Big Bang thing, like it shouldn't just be starting for no reason in some super improbable state. So, so I don't know whether we want to go there, but I do think that there's something else that you can say if you have the kind of single universe theory starting from an initial singularity. If you want to have an explanation uh, for that initial state, you can um, claim that it's necessary and now you've got an explanation of why it happened it happened because it had to um i can see you raising all eyebrows at once so so the way that i'm thinking about this is that um you need to think about what's the best theory of metaphysical modality and the one that i like is one that says that all worlds share some history with the actual world branch off from it because the chances play out differently so you've got a kind of Storrs McCall picture about what the metaphysical possibilities are and it immediately falls out of that picture that if there's an initial state, it's necessary. So that was how you get there, right? Yeah. So, so this runs against the kind of standard conceivability views of um, metaphysical possibility, which I don't like. I would rather not multiply possibilities beyond necessity the only ones you need are the ones you need for chances so let's just leave it there well wait i mean the only one the only one we need is the actual world i mean we could say that that's um, the only possible world well not not if there are chances though right because oh, you're yeah, committed, where there's there chances, chances you're committed to saying there's other ways it could have gone yeah right so that gives you the there are possibilities but you don't need any other possibilities except the ones that right yeah but chances. i mean Saying there are chances, like that's not part of the evidence, right? I mean, like the evidence uh, that you have is just observing the actual world. Well, so. well, it depends what you're counting as. Like, it depends if we think of quantum mechanics as the best theory for explaining a certain amount of the evidence, and quantum mechanics says that there are chances then that's how you get the commitment to chances, right? Where you're thinking about all the different bits of the theory that you're going to commit to. And so the bit that I'm picking on here is that um, the, and it's controversial, is that the most that quantum mechanics is a really good theory of the world and the best interpretation of it commits you to chances. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know. So, you know, I was thinking like, well, why doesn't somebody say, okay, the actual world is the only possible world? Yeah, okay. So like if quantum mechanics implies that, you know, there are other other possibilities, then, you know, it's false. But like this theory, the theory according to which the actual world is necessary predicts everything that we've actually observed. It's like it predict, predicts all the observations, right? Because we don't so, observe um, But, but it doesn't right? give you the it doesn't give you the most economical theory. I mean, depending on your views, you might think that if you suppose that everything is necessary, then everything is going to turn out to just be kind of. It, it couldn't have been otherwise. It turns out to be kind of brute. So you have a very uneconomical theory. 
why did this happen next? Well, it had to, and that's the the only thing that you can say about it. And we lose the, our libertarian one, free will. I think will. the one the one possible worldview doesn't strike me as kind of theoretically virtuous in all respects. It doesn't compress your evidence in any interesting ways, for example. Uh, yeah. Uh, is, it, is it simpler, though, Dr. Humor? Yeah. yeah well, I mean, not if what I just said was right. But <laughs> yeah, it depends on what you mean by simpler, right? So, like, yeah, there are fewer fewer possible worlds if those are supposed to be things that exist then you know it's committed to fewer things existing it's simply in that way i don't well, know you don't have chances either right like what you might say oh are. yeah it's super comp yeah that's right you don't have to say research chances yeah. you might say oh it's super complicated because so it says there's only one thing but the description of that one thing is super complicated <laughs> like you know every fact right um whereas if you've got some you know, if you've if you've got some genuine theories, um, you can compress a whole lot of the description, and you might think, as I do, that that makes for better theory. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, so you have you have a shorter description, but it doesn't explain everything, right? So, like, the shorter description says, "Oh, there are these laws. These laws give you probabilities of things happening." Okay, if the if the description specifies and here's what happened, so like there was this probability and this probability, and then this one is the one that was actualized. Well, then that's just as complicated, or or more so actually than the one that just says you know the entire description of the actual world. Right? Um, all right. So yeah. So like you know the theory that's got the chances in it. Um, so it's got so, a shorter description, but it doesn't predict all the evidence. So so I suspect that's not quite right. Um, but uh, it depends on the kind of domains of local determinism, as I guess you might call it. So you get you get quite a lot of stuff where there's compression. It's just that there are places where everywhere where there's a chance, you have to feed in a bit of data by hand. It's not feeding in all the data by hand. I'm not sure whether this is right or not, <laughs> but that's... Yeah. My hunch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, um, I don't know, like, when I thought about why I believed in modality, like, I wasn't thinking about quantum mechanics and stuff. Like, when people told me that there was this thing called necessity, I thought the basis for it was basically like, you have intuitions that things could have been a certain way. And somebody describes something, you go, yeah, it seems like I could have, oh, it could have turned out that Newtonian mechanics was true. And, like, you know, so, like, in your view, like, there's a whole bunch of stuff that, I would have thought as part of the data that leads you to posit modality, you know, yeah. that you're rejecting. Yeah, that's right. So if it it's it couldn't have turned out that the world was Newtonian, according to me. I mean, in the metaphysical sense, there's we need we need probabilities for another thing which has to do with our ignorance, right? Um, and so there are oh, some people call them epistemic probabilities. I'm going to call them doxastic probabilities. You need if you if you're going to gamble, for example, you need those. Yeah. Yeah. Wait. But so, would you, would you say that you know you apply probabilities to possibilities that aren't really possible? Because right, because like we've got to consider, you know, we have to consider theories where the laws of physics are different, right? And like on your view, those are impossible. 
So if you're so suppose you were doing kind of theory selection of theories of everything, then you're going to be talking about theories that by your lights couldn't possibly be true. Um, and so I don't think when you're doing that theory selection, you can actually attribute probabilities to the theories. Uh, I'm not a Bayesian in at, They'd all be at, zero. at, at yeah. that level. Um, I think there are limits to um, the ways in which you can sensibly att attach probabilities to things. So I don't think that there's a probability that you could have given, say, in um, to to, to Newton's theory being true, yeah. say in 1710 and 1750 and 1830 and 1870. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if there's a determinate probability, but like you know, if you say like there, there's no probability at all, like this makes it hard to understand, like you know how how you can talk about theories being supported or not supported, or you know more strongly um, supported. Mm -hmm. So, so that so that. Oh, I don't know whether we want to go down yeah, that route. Right. <laughs> I mean, there are things to say, yeah. but we've been going for a bit. Yeah. yeah, you did, uh, Dr. Rappi, you did trigger him by saying that that uh, Bayes has its limits. Uh, because yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so ah! I, I could have started a whole new conversation. Um, well, okay, so uh, the infinite, we, we just had this long conversation, you guys did, about uh, the infinite past. And that's important because if the past is uh, finite, then, Dr. Humer, your argument for us existing now collapses then, right? The, the argument for reincarnation, yeah. 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 It yeah. requires an, an infinite past. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, and an infinite future or just the past? Yeah, also an infinite future. Well, you know, like, because if the, if the universe ends in whatever, sometime, <laughs> you might not be reincarnated again during that time, right? Right, right. I can't predict how long it takes, you know, so might take yeah. longer than the amount of time we have left. Okay. Well, awesome. Let's, let's, um, let's go ahead and ask some questions here. Uh, we got a little bit more time folks. So go ahead and uh, put your question in the chat. I already see some coming in. And uh, like I said earlier, the super chats will get priority. So let's start with our one and only super chat here. Um, <clears throat> this one is from Stephen Dillon to both. What's at stake? What is lost by introducing non-physicality to account for the mind and what's lost by broadening physicality to include the mind. And I think you guys know which respected person those are directed at. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, so I, you know, I think about why I'm saying the mind is non-physical. It's not because I think there's some co cost to saying it's physical because it just doesn't seem to me like, what we call physical like as far as i understand what physical means like and i don't understand all that well but it's sort of like i guess i understand the concept physical by some examples hmm. like okay you know like size is physical and what mass is physical whatever and then you know like thinking about paris man it doesn't sound like the same kind of thing like that's why i'm saying that so and anyway if somebody wants to say no, no i'm just going to use the category physical to include mental things I'm like, okay, well, whatever. Okay. Then I just think that that's a verbal mistake or, you know, I think you just think you're using the word physical in a weird way, whatever, but you know, who cares? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Dr. Rappi. So. I don't know. The, 
the what's at stake questions when it comes to philosophy are often kind of hard to to um, answer, I think. Um, one thing that you might think is that there are um, lots of people who have worldviews um, where they think that there are supernatural minds and think that we have a kind of supernatural dimension, right? Mm. It's not that we're destined for reincarnation in this universe. We're destined for some, for some supernatural destination where right. we're going to be reincarnated and so on. And there, um, there are kind of practical stakes about whether you're going to be a member of a religion that has that kind of view or not. So that's one way of thinking about where there might be stakes. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, following following up on that one, uh, Dr. Appy, here's a question for you. If you believed in souls, would you believe in libertarian free will? <laughs> oh, dear. Counterfactuals are so difficult to start <laughs> with. And this one's got, yeah. you know. I guess it has um, to do with which one's more fundamental for you, right? Like. Um. So, yeah. So, given our given our conversation, uh, if if by believing in souls we mean not just thinking that there are that that there's this kind of interesting relation between mental properties and other properties, but that there's a substance, I'm probably more firmly committed to. Yeah, I don't know. I don't like either of them, <laughs> and I don't. But I don't see them as connected either. I have kind of independent reasons. Okay. Uh, I think libertarian free will, if you take the standard kind of principle of alternative possibilities, really is very unattractive. Mm. So, um, the and you know maybe if you can have a kind of agent causation account without the principle of alternative possibilities, as some people seem to think you can, yeah. then maybe that would be more attractive <clears throat> than the kind of we have supernatural souls. Yeah. Okay. Kind of that makes sense. Um, also, Dr. Humor, in case you don't get to respond, uh, what is your response to Oppie's argument that uh, indeterminist randomness seems to refute the consequence argument? Yeah. Uh, well, um, I mean, so, you know, like what I said wasn't exactly the consequence argument per se, uh, but it was about why determinism was incompatible with free will. So you could say, oh, yeah, that's fine, because, you know, like we don't have determinism because of quantum mechanics or something. Right, right, right. Um, so, I mean, you'd want to say something else about why, like, an indeterministic physicalist view would be a problem for free will you want to say something like well i mean it kind of just like makes it seem like your actions are random you know like, and not under your control you might think oh but then you know why isn't it true that your actions are random even with dualism but the thought is well there's a special problem if your actions are caused by some totally um you know blind non-conscious things Right. And so like, I was sort of assuming and then like, you know, this got challenged, but I was sort of assuming that if you're a physicalist, you would be like a bottom up causation kind of physicalist. So you right. would think, 
you know, all your actions are determined by the stuff that the mic microscopic particles are doing. And then they're completely blind. They don't have any reasons. They don't respond to reasons. So, you know, then it's going to be that your behavior is going to be determined by um, you know, these physical things that don't respond to reason. Then it doesn't matter if they're deterministic or indeterministic. Right. Um, and then, so, you know, like the only way to get free will is to have, well, you know, like the, the thing at the higher level, like the mental properties are causing the behavior. Like yeah. That. So that was my thought. Um, yeah. Well, so I want to push that back on, on Dr. Oppie yeah. there um, and just add in maybe like, like overdetermination there. Uh, maybe it doesn't work. Right. But Dr. Oppie, can you respond to, to what Dr. Humor said there um, at the end? So, So, so I'm thinking about your remark about overdetermination. Uh, it, it, I mean, one one of the standard worries about um, the kind of bottom-up view for philosophy of mind is that it's going to make all the you know it, if you thought that there was any kind of separate causal power that attached to say beliefs and desires <laughs> and the causation of action. Um, there would be a kind of causal overdetermination because the what happened would be determined by the stuff at the lower level. Yeah. Um, because I was thinking that there aren't <laughs> there aren't determination relations of that very strong kind between the scales, you won't have that kind of worry. Yeah. Does the strength matter? Um, don't the physical particles, whatever they may be, super strings. Don't they still need to be in the right spot in order for you to have such and such a thought, or are they completely, uh, you know, once you get up to the next scale, it's completely not attached to the, the bottom scale? Well, no, there's definitely attachment. So if you think about the region of space that your body occupies, and then think about some low scale, yeah. um, it's, there's going to be particles down there, and there won't be anything else filling that space. Yeah. But the question wasn't about the stuff. It was about the properties. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, that's good. Uh, I guess, yeah, Dr. Himmer, please. Sorry, do you, do you accept supervenious, like that the, you know, the mental properties supervene on the arrangement of the microphysical you know, objects? So, and properties? so there are... Um, supervenience relations so think about the kind of picture and pixels right that's a standard view i'm thinking about supervenience in the kind of rough roughly in the kind of um jackson lewis way so no change in the properties of the image without some change in the pixels um presumably no change in your um mental state without some change in the arrangement of the particles. But that's a very, very weak relation. Very weak. Yeah, but... And but it's I mean, sort of consistent with the point about the, um, the impossibility of defining the kind of high-level properties in terms of low-level properties. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, there are, there are stronger versions of supervenience, stronger versions than that that weak one, but then I'm not inclined to accept the stronger principles of supervenience. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. I, I'm so tempted to stick with the argument from reason type stuff here, but uh, we, we do have another super chat here um, to humor. Uh, do your views on minds have any non-obvious philosophical implications for animal minds? If so, what are they? 
Uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, so, you know, like I, I assume that animals have mental states or, you know, some animals have mental states. Uh, you know, like I assume that your dog, uh, you know, he has visual experiences when you come in the room, he sees you, whatever, like he knows that you're going to feed him and he wants the food, whatever. Okay. You know, beliefs and desires, all that. So, so he has a mind. So, you know, it's non-physical. I mean, you know, it, so I guess those are the obvious implications. Yeah. Um, you know, like one thing that I wondered about was like, uh, hey, can you be uh, reincarnated as a non-person animal? And uh, unfortunately, I don't know the answer to that. And I, I hope I hope the answer is no, because I don't want to live as a non-person animal. But uh, I have no way of answering that. Okay, so, but yeah, there might be some interesting, like you know, implications if you know, like you know, if you can be reincarnated as animals, maybe you should think more carefully about how you treat animals. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so one question there though is, I mean, resemblance seemed to play a big role. So the idea was that there was going to be this, <laughs> essentially a kind of duplicate of you, qualitative duplicate of you at some point in the future. That would be you because there's another bit of the argument about sort of what matters for personal identity. It's not clear that how animals, you know, are going to get into that story really because your dog's not that similar to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, you know, or any particular dog is probably not that similar to you, but maybe there's some dog that's really similar. Uh, no way. Well, I, don't, I don't think so, though, right? I mean, what, so, genetic, yeah, I mean, genetic differences and all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, what, what happened was, you know, when I was thinking of the argument, um, I was led to the argument by thinking about, um, you know, eternal recurrence. Actually, I was led to it by thinking about the multiverse because I read uh, Leonard Susskind's book about this. And I started thinking, hey, and, you know, there multiverse people are talking about how like oh there's going to be like a duplicate of you in some universe <laughs> and, and then i started thinking well why isn't the duplicate actually me so then why am i not having the duplicates experience at the same time okay but then i realized that you don't have to have other universes to have a question like this like even in one universe like there's going to be a duplicate of you later and maybe that will be you okay and then so that's how i started thinking about reincarnation and then and like when i wrote the paper it sounds like the eternal recurrence is essential to it. But later I realized that it's not. But the eternal recurrence is on account of how reincarnation might come about. But it's not the only possible way that it might come about. Yeah. So like maybe you have a soul and maybe there's some just unknown conditions that cause your soul to go into a living thing. And then, you know, and then that living right, so, thing so, you. It's like a so metaphysical this now, law. This, this is now getting much closer to certain kinds of... In Eastern metaphysical views about the nature of reality, I think, once you've gone that far. You know, the, I mean, the typical um, in Hindu thought, but also in Buddhist thought, that there's a fairly long scale over which, for a single cycle, but reality is just made up of a series of cycles and from one cycle to the next, or even within a cycle from one lifetime to the next, you can come back as a cockroach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I'm I'm more skeptical about cockroaches because I'm not sure they're even sentient. <laughs> yeah, is is does rationality? I, I know you said you 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 don't you're not sure on this, but it, do I have a rational soul? Are we can Dr. Humor can we follow like Descartes in that? Does does the cogito give us that or anything such that uh, I can't be a cockroach? I can't be a dog because I have a rational soul and he doesn't. Oh, uh, this doesn't sound to me like compelling reasoning. So, yeah. uh, look, I mean. You know, when I 
when I think of the soul, I just think like it's the mind or it's the yeah. subject of mental states. So like there are these mental states, which you can argue are non-physical and okay. And if you accept that, then you're like, okay, and what are they states of? Oh, it's yeah. states of this thing called the mind. And then somebody says, Hey, look, in addition to the regular soul, I have this other thing called the rational soul. Then I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about because like the subject of my different mental states, there's one subject of yeah. like my rational thoughts and my sensations and my emotions, like, those are all had by the same me. So there's not more yeah. than one soul. So, yeah. But, but so qualitatively, is there, is there, a, can we get at a qualitative difference between like a dog soul and my soul? Why, why does the dog not have uh, the capacity for speech that I have? Is it just because he has a different brain than me that allows him to have yeah, different yeah. mental, mental states? Yeah, that might be. Yeah. Because then we well, might have I mean, to tell a different story about the mental state, you know, supervening on the physical state, brain state. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. He doesn't doesn't talk because he doesn't have a speech center in his brain or, you know, whatever, like, because he doesn't have the genes that yeah. evolved yeah. over the course of, you know, some millions of years for, for speech. But in yeah, principle, that's... he could be having, like, the same kind of soul that I have and just really frustrated that he doesn't have the speech center. Maybe he's screaming internally. <laughs> right? Yeah. Is that... Is well, that... Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he, he, um, yes, but he wouldn't know what speech was, so he wouldn't be frustrated that he doesn't have it. Right? Oh, because you, yeah, you say that he doesn't remember. But if he has the yeah, capacity, yeah. it's like an unrealized. Oh, yeah. If it's unrealized, okay, that's well, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, like, I look. I don't. I don't know. I don't know whether you could come <laughs> back as a dog or something. Yeah. Um, I right. think you could come back as a member of another species, but I don't know whether it has to be another intelligent species or, sure. you know, yeah. but. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I was going to say something else I've forgotten. Oh, sorry about that. Just jump in when you get it. Here's a here's another one uh, for Dr. Humor. Is the existence of souls equally likely on theism and atheism? And I, I want to push that to uh, Dr. Oppie as well. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, let's see. If there's a God, I guess God is a soul by definition, right? He's going yeah. to be a physical object, right? Okay. Yeah. So then, I, I think so. so. Then the answer is uh, it's more likely on theism because there's a guarantee, like probability one, that there's at least one soul. Okay. Also, maybe you mean human souls. Okay. Well, yeah. If there's at least one, if if you know that there's at least one soul that's not human, that raises the probability that there are, that humans have souls, right? So yeah, yeah I guess. Yeah, Doctor Happy. I guess it depends on your version of theism. Hmm. So if you, I mean, as Mike just suggested, if you're thinking about God as as a person, then you're going to, and, and you're thinking of the, 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 this is a person without a body, right, a non-physical yeah. person, you, you are going to be stuck with a soul. And so it's right um but there are views of the divine that don't make um god come out as having personal attributes of any kind and so um then we have this kind of difficult question about okay so which is the more likely view right right when, when it comes to theism, I can't quite know how to assist. Someone that. needs to write a book about arguing about gods or something. And we can get, <laughs> we can yeah. Um, okay. Uh, just a few more here. Um, following up on the, a similar thread there, uh, this is for uh, Dr. Humor, but also I'll, I'll, I'll 
pose it to Dr. Appi. How probable is theism? What's the best argument for theism, in your opinion? Yeah, good. Yeah, I like this question because it lets me plug, you know, this book, Knowledge, Knowledge, Reality, and Value, in which uh, I do talk about theism. Uh, it's an introduction to philosophy. The best argument, um, you know, that I know of is the fine-tuning argument. Hmm. Um, what's how probable is theism? Like, I really don't know. It's like really hard for me to assess. So, okay, so I think um, some of the things that are traditionally said about God, I think, are metaphysically impossible. Okay, but also I think like you know, do, do you have any examples? Eh? Sorry. Oh, uh, being all powerful. I guess I think that's metaphysically impossible. Being, okay. Or being infinitely powerful. So I think you could you could have any degree of power, but there's no maximum degree of power, and you can't be infinitely powerful. Infinitely power, yeah. Right? Sort of like how, yeah, there like there's no largest natural number. So there's just natural numbers getting bigger and bigger, and infinity isn't a number. Yeah. <laughs> so that's analogous to how I think like there's there's no property being maximally powerful. There's just like more and more degrees of power. Okay. Couldn't um, maximally anyway, just be the highest amount? I, I get the infinite, infinitely yeah. powerful. Yeah, there's no highest amount, right? Yeah. It's like the yeah. largest number. There's no largest number. They just get bigger and bigger. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Um, well, maybe I'm wrong, but anyway. Yeah, sure. <laughs> that's like that. um, okay. But, you know, I think you could have like a view that's recognizably theistic without saying all the things that are traditionally said. So maybe there's an extremely powerful creator, intelligent creator, who's also extremely good and extremely knowledgeable. Yeah. And then, I mean, is that God? It's like, I get, so I guess you could call that theism. So in that case, then I, then I'm agnostic about theism. Okay. And his son uh, and then, is, uh, you know, Jesus Christ, maybe even and he died for your sins and, but no, we're messing with the probabilities here. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so you know, you're making the probability lower, but still, still possible as far as I know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so like you know, I think that I think there are two explanations of fine tuning. There's the multiverse, and then there's intelligent design, mm. and they're both amazing, right? Wow. Which, by the way, I mean in, I do not mean a sense of praise, right? Like being amazing means it's less less likely on the face. Oh, of okay, it, yeah. are amazing. But yeah. they're the only two things that somebody has thought of. So yeah. like, you're like, which one of these is less amazing? I don't know. Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Appy. So, so just on that point, if you go with the kind of McCall style, Aristotelian view of modality, you get a different account. I mean, it depends whether you think that, the fine tuning is, you know, the values are fixed in the initial state or not. If they're fixed in the initial state, they're necessary. So there's the explanation. If they're not, then what you've got is some sort of chance transition because they weren't fixed. They go from being not fixed to fixed, in which case doesn't matter what the probability is, you're committed to that explanation anyway, because there's numbers the, the size of the improbability doesn't matter once you've accepted that it was just a chance transition. Okay. So uh, there are other options that have been considered, though many people think that these options are kind of crazy. Yeah, Philip Goff says uh, the universe designed itself and is cosmopsychism. And I guess that'd be in a similar case as your uh, chance where now the probability, probabilities go out the window because it's a, a personal cause. Uh, personal cause i guess yeah i don't know i don't want to talk smack on his position because he's not here um but well yeah so i I don't know you know i don't know if we want to say more about the fine-tuning thing 
Um, some of the responses to the fine tuning argument, I think, um, you know, I, I think are bad because they would also be responses in hypothetical scenarios in which surely you would have evidence for theism, right? So suppose hmm. that somehow it was built into the laws of nature that, you know, there are certain uh, crystals that when they form, they form into the shape of the letters made by God, hmm. right? Like, and like there's these different crystals that form made yeah, by yeah. God in all of the late languages of the world, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. And then, but, you know, nothing else. And then like, and, but, you know, just stipulate that it's like, it's built into the laws of nature. Okay. And so then, you know, if we have one of these responses to the fine tuning argument that says, oh, you can't assign probabilities to the laws of nature, so you can't infer anything. Uh, so then that response implies that even in the made by God world, you have no reason to think that there's any kind of intelligent designer, right? And like, come on. Okay. So that doesn't, so, so, so that doesn't sound good for the, um, for the certain views, but it doesn't seem to touch the Aristotelian modality view. Um, well, no, I mean, like, you know, so, so like in my scenario, so like it was always built into the laws that, you know, there would be these made by yeah. God messages. And so then, oh, yeah, so but, then but, like- but the, truth, but, the, but the truth is that what you're talking about is impossible, right? Uh, I mean, well, I'm just, you, I'm assuming there are no such crystals. Are you a hundred percent certain that it's impossible? Um, <laughs> so, so the question about certainty is kind of interesting at this mm. point. No, right. The, it, it will be crazy to take the view that you accept to be certain, but still when, if the view that you accept says that certain things are impossible, then that's what you should think, right? That is your view. It's just that you hold it tentatively. It's open to revision. But I mean, I as, think as, which is kind of sensible. But, no, but if there's like but then we answer the question by looking to see what our view says. No, but I think like if there's, you know, a possibility, <laughs> if there's a possibility that the by God world could happen. Then I think there's an intelligible question as to what you sh should say or like what would be confirmed if that were to happen. So I don't, but but then possibility in what sense? Is there a metaphysical possibility? I think not. If you mean, could somebody dream up this speculation and then we could think about how that speculation squares with the evidence that we've got? Well, in that case, not well, because we have none of these crystals. And I think yeah. we should be very confident that we'll never find one of them. Yeah, but I mean, like... If do... the question is, would it, would it, what what would we think if, you know, this is sort of like Hume's question about the voice from the sky, what would we think? Oh, well, actually, I don't know what we think in that circumstance. <clears throat> yeah. But I mean, we wouldn't just shrug our shoulders and go, well, it's necessary that no. it's that way, so it doesn't no, need any explanation. Sure, sure. Yeah. That's, that's probably true, right? But then what you've got there is something, I think, different from the fine-tuning of the constants. So, I mean, maybe hmm. I don't, I'm not convinced that there's a very good parallel between the kind of the, the, yeah. the crystals. So, I mean, you did say built into the laws. I'm not sure how that's going to work exactly. Um, <laughs> anyway. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, I haven't worked out the physics model. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We get, we we still got to find these crystals, and then we yeah. can back backfill it and figure it out. Uh, well, Dr. Oppie, um, what do you think? Is there is there a best argument for theism, and uh, how probable is theism? A lot of people will know what you're going to say here. Um, well, you can probably guess. I mean, I'm so on the on the theory that I've got, theism just turns out to be impossible. Right. Yeah. So one way of going is to say it gets probability zero. Yeah. But I'm not going to go that way um, unless you just say what's the probability with respect to your theory. Right, right. Because, because I don't think my – I mean, as I just said, it would be absurd for me to think that my theory was certain in all respects. That would be just crazy. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that it's very useful to talk about probability beyond this. What I think is that there can be reasonable – disagreement that <laughs> there are other worldviews that very smart people hold that disagree with mine in ever so many ways because that's the nature of philosophy and sure. metaphysical speculation um and it can be perfectly reasonable for people to accept some other view so that's that's the yeah. kind of how i want to talk about these things i just don't want to talk about probability yeah well, so how, I don't think that I sort of have probabilities for beyond the relative to my view. Yeah. I don't have another set of probabilities that says, well, you know, Bill Craig's view gets this much and Richard Swinburne's gets that much and Alvin Plantinga's gets that much and okay. Mike Humes gets so much and so on, right? I just, I just don't have probabilities like that. Yeah. Um, on the question, what's the best argument for theism? Well, obviously, some kind of cumulative case argument. So, I mean, Swinburne, I think, has the most developed cumulative case. So I think that his is the best argument that's been put together so far, though I expect that there are theists who could put together kind of better cases than his if they bothered to take yeah. him as a model and try and set out a kind of cumulative case. Yeah, if they took Swinburne and, uh, and posed it, uh, the universe starting in 1950, then it would presumably be more likely. Uh, so maybe maybe I'll try. Maybe we're on something here. Right. Well, there's there's lots of options. I mean, there's yeah. lots of controversial from from kind of Christian viewpoint. There's lots of con that's controversial about Swinburne's. You're absolutely right. Yeah, Argument right. and say you can feel you know you can develop an alternative, and but that seems to me to be the right kind of model. Okay. All right. So we have just two more uh, super chats here. Uh, Dr. Humor, at what stage of evolution did souls emerge? Uh, if already answered, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, we didn't answer that. Um, of course, I don't know, but I mean, it was whenever there was first a conscious being. I don't know when that happened. I didn't even, I didn't even know which beings are conscious now. So, um, so, so I've thought about this question too, and I mean, I. I I, I suspect that it go, that consciousness actually goes pretty low down, maybe lower than you think. So maybe hmm. you know worms are conscious. I'm, I mean, I'm not wedded to that opinion, but sometimes when I think about it, I'm kind of tempted to think that just a few layers of neurons will be enough. Interesting. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, well, so. Oh, sorry, uh, Dr. Humor is uh, muted. Yeah, please. Yeah, sorry. Maybe this is not exactly answering what the person wanted, but yeah, actually, in my view, souls existed forever. <laughs> There's no time it emerged. It's like infinitely, infinite into the past. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so here's a. Um, maybe maybe I can uh, tease this out a little bit, Dr. Humor. You you believe in uh, evolution, though, 
right? Right, yeah. So there was at some point where, well, I don't know. I guess it depends on what you say about souls. But um, this type of soul, I couldn't exist as me uh, two billion years ago or whatever it, when, you know, my ancestors weren't on track to, weren't, weren't me yet, right? So is there, is there a certain point at which... A human soul can then enter in. Does that make any sense? You get more. Well, yeah. Uh, so you know, presumably there are some physical conditions that are required um, for you to have a life, right? Yeah. Like a, an an object has to have certain physical characteristics in order for you to be able to inhabit it. Yeah. As your body. That's why I'm not in the desk right now. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know what these conditions are. Okay, but yeah, you know, probably took a couple billion years for, or may, maybe it took four and a half billion years for there to be the first thing that you could have occupied. Okay. Because right? that's when there was first an intelligent being. Yeah. Or, you know, there was a, first a brain capable of supporting intelligence. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and I guess just a quick follow-up when we're disembodied, um, do we have rational thoughts or do we need a brain in order to have rational thoughts? Yeah. No, no thoughts. Sorry. Okay. So, Dang it. So, so I don't know. I'm like, why do I say that? Well, like if you suffer brain damage, then like it damages your um, reasoning ability and stuff like that. Like just, you know, any, any of the things that you do can be impaired by suffering brain damage. So if you, yeah. after you die, your whole brain is going to be destroyed. So you're not going to be doing anything. That's true. But if, if Tony Stark suffers damage to uh, his Iron Man suit, he can't fly, but then you put him in a new suit and in that intermediate time, yeah, you know, he can still do, Tony Stark things. Uh, yes, <laughs> uh, that's true. But I mean, that's because you know he's like a whole being without the suit. I mean, yeah. but we, but like you know, we don't, don't have the evidence about Tony Stark that we have about people like because we have evidence <laughs> about people getting brain damage and just like yeah. well, I don't I don't really know this, but like I'm assuming you know like everything that people do can be impaired by some kind of brain damage. I think that's true. Everything now we're you're asking, you know, a fly Graham Oppie's right here, man. I don't yeah, know yeah. if someone's going to point to some uh, counter example. Yeah, well, like if that's not true, that would be amazing, right? And that would be like, what kind of amazing? Yeah, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it would be amazing. Time. Okay, all right, all right. Well, uh, let's move on. This one's uh related, but it's just moving up the timeline a little bit for both. Uh, when in fetal, when in fetal development does the soul slash consciousness emerge does this have implications for the abortion debate no pressure yeah, I mean, it's not a super hard question yeah i mean yeah that's a great question right and of course you know like i have no way of knowing this because i don't remember you know like i was a fetus once but i don't remember or or i don't know if i was a fetus maybe i was only a baby <laughs> okay <laughs> but yeah so you know well this the soul appears at the first time that there's a um a conscious experience Okay, but actually your soul always existed. It's eternal. It's just that it became like, you know, a particular body became that soul's body at a particular yeah. time. I don't know when that happened. Yeah. But also, I'm not sure that this has the implications for abortion that you'd think that it does. Hmm. So, because um, like on my view, well, you already existed. You were just like unembodied. <laughs> so if you're at the time during fetal development before the soul inhabits the body uh you know there's the soul is still there so it's still true that there is someone who yeah. you're going to be harming if you destroy the fetus 
Uh, and, you know, and just like after the soul goes into it, there's someone who's going to be harmed if you destroy the fetus. And that, by the way, and I don't know what the implication of that is, right? But yeah. also, by the way, like, you know, and I, I guess, um, you know, if you're worried, if you think that it's unethical to destroy the fetus because there's somebody who will be harmed because, like, they're going to have to stay unconscious instead of being conscious and embodied and having life, well, that's actually true if you just refrain from producing a child and could have produced, right? There's, there's somebody. Yeah. They weren't in the queue yet. Time who would have become embodied and then you're going to stop them from being embodied. So, so there are some other problems about kind of infinite mathematics here. If you really think that you get kind of incarnated infinitely many times, it's not clear that missing one is actually going to make any difference to your well-being. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's, there's, you know, great ethical questions about this, right? Like, <laughs> how should we, you know, if you're a consequentialist, how should you calculate the consequences that matter? Like, should you sort of like, look at each person? And so like, you know, like, if you if you had a choice to be embodied or not, at some particular time, and like, you know, that lifetime was going to have positive value, but lower than the average value mm -hmm. of your lifetimes, you know, it, should you take it or not? Right? Yeah. So, right. So, well, the, if you don't take it, maybe you think the average would just infinitesimally go up. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so I mean, that's the question. Like, do you? Yeah. So, do you just look at, um, you know, your subjective sequence, right? Or do you look at, um, do you some value over objective time, or do you some value over like, sub, you know, yeah. subjective times? so to speak. Yeah. You guys just made everyone a bunch of antinatalists. So uh, there's that. Well, I wonder if, if you don't know, if you don't know whether there's a person in there or not, it's kind of like the, uh, the demolition of a building, right? Like if you don't know if someone's in there or not, don't, don't dynamite the building. It's like you, if you, if you don't know and you don't know if it's going to actually, if it will cause harm and you don't know their subjective calculations uh, on, you know, if they're, <clears throat> if they're yeah. trying to just have one life, and they'll be super awesome, and then they'll, they'll their experiences will be great. They're trying to avoid being reincarnated. If you don't know that, then don't don't dynamite the building. Um, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. So there's this argument from moral risk. I mean, just like more generally, uh, if there's something that you're not sure if it's extremely morally wrong or not, mm -hmm. um, but like there's no case for it being obligatory, then like there's a strong reason to not do it. <laughs> like, sure. Even if you think it's probably not wrong at all, but there's a chance that it might be extremely wrong. Yeah. And also it's definitely not wrong to not do it. Then like, yeah, don't do it. Right? Yeah. Then you'd have to, yeah. So then people are going to be arguing about whether it's obligatory or whatever. Uh, Dr. Oppie, yeah. What do, what do you think about this? So as Mike said before, we have quite a lot of information about, um, sort of brain activity and um, mental states. And so probably we can be very confident that in the, in the fetus to the point where we have kind of brain activity of the relevant kind, there isn't going to be a soul hmm. attached. Um, that seems fairly solid, I would have thought. The question is exactly where that happens um not in the first trimester um, yeah well and i guess it has to do with like the uh, how you um characterize like the 
value, I guess, of the of the fetus, whether it's like able to do that function now or whether it's potentially it will if 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 left untouched, it will grow into that and um so the question, the first question was just when does it happen? Oh, yeah, right. When does it uh, And so I'm thinking about the answer to that. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Thanks for thinking that. about what data we would have to go on. And okay. I think we've got some. Okay. Data. That's, that's a really helpful clarification. Someone sent in one last super chat, and it actually connects a little bit. I'm not sure whether the question was asked, but assuming we will be reincarnated, what effect might this have on the ethics of killing? And so, yeah, like, is it is it less serious uh, to kill and immortal uh being or a, a be- immortal and then also immortal that's going to be reincarnated a ton of times oh oops he's uh, muted here dr humor sorry about that oh yeah okay so yeah you might think oh well like the total value that you experience over infinite time is infinity uh regardless of whether you get killed or not so maybe you know maybe there's no reason not to kill someone okay but the thing is like that reasoning like that would be like, you know, if that's correct, like that destroys consequentialism in general, right? Mm. It's like the value of the universe is infinite or it might be negative infinity, but anyway, it's either yeah. positive or negative infinity. And it's going to be that no matter what you do in any situation. So like, you know, if you buy this argument, then, oh, no reason to do anything or not do anything. Like, yeah. Presumably that's so wrong. I- presumably, you know, you're supposed to look at some more limited range of things like, look at you know the consequences of your action maybe maybe you restricted to the consequences of your action in this actions in this lifetime or something you're supposed to add up those see whether those are overall negative or positive or something okay so so if you have a the view that the universe is finite in the past and spatially finite then you aren't going to be committed to the infinity of value i mean given the what i take to be the facts about what the future is going to be like so Consequentialism will survive in some frameworks against this objection. It's just in the kind of infinite universe, infinite reincarnation, there's going to be. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, yeah, I was assuming an infinite future, and I guess that, you know, there will be other living things going, you know, going on forever. Uh, you, might, you might think because of the heat death of the universe that, you know, there will be a, a permanent end of life. Um, yeah. Yeah. proton decay and and the endless expansion and just no more protons after that hmm. yeah maybe is, it, is there actually is there a zero probability of a proton being generated from radiation so so i think the answer is yes but i'm not don't quote me on that right i'm not right. i'm not sure but i think that there there is that the kind okay. of after on, on the, the so the, so the book that I'm quoting from is a little bit old now, so it'll be useful if there's another book that some bunch of cosmologists have written about the likely future of the universe that, that might answer that question. Yeah. But I, I think it is zero. Okay. Um, okay, I hate to do this. One last, this is like a $10 one, so it's huge. No one ask any more questions after this one, please. I, it's funny to say that because they're super chats, but I want to respect <laughs> these gentlemen's time, and I'm already intimidated having them on here. Uh, okay, so uh, for Dr. Humor, if life needs a biological substrate and always arises through a process of evolution, average incarnation would likely be a net positive. Is that plausible? I, f- I find this emotionally comforting. I don't... Wait, I didn't understand why he said uh, average incarnation would be a net positive. Uh, is it? Is this like 
you know, you're assuming that um, most living things have good lives. Um, yeah. Actually, I'm not seeing the connection between the first part, between the antecedent and the consequent of that. Um, I, actually, like I have a blog post at one point, you know, talking about what the value of the universe is. And I think it might be negative infinity because when you, like, okay, you like you probably have a positive utility life. But when you think about like all of the other, like almost all conscious beings are non-intelligent animals and their lives are shitty. Yeah. Like, you know, constantly in danger of starvation and like being eaten alive by other animals, <laughs> like whatever. And you're know, like, when it's raining, you can't get out of the rain. You just have to sit there. You get yeah. sick. Like there's no medicine or anything. You break your leg. You're just going to die. And whatever. <laughs> like, what if like, they're loving it though? Cause like, we don't just, know what it's like to be a bat. Right. So what if they're just like, <laughs> I love echolocation. Yeah, you know? So, so yeah. I think you should focus on a different case, which is the history of humanity and the percentage of people who don't make it out of the first year or two. Um, it's not clear that their lives are a net positive and they make up the, probably the majority of people in history. Yeah, I mean, so, maybe, you have to, maybe you have to sort of look at person years, right? not person. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, I mean, yeah, okay. So the average incarnation, it's, that's not quite the question. It's the yeah. average over-incarnation years would be yeah, positive. Maybe. Maybe. maybe that's the issue. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for this. This was uh, fantastic. I'm glad we made it through. Uh, I'm unscathed, I think. I, I feel good. I was really nervous about this. But uh, I, thanks for both both of you for all your time. And again, like I said at the beginning, uh, we really appreciate you guys. We've learned a ton from you, the, the internet community, public philosophy. And you guys do it in a way that um, is fun. You do take like requests that you probably shouldn't. So I've seen some of you guys, you go on with these crazy folks. Maybe I'm one of them, but um, <laughs> crazy folks I, like Parker. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But I, I, I really appreciate you. And just a big thanks from, from uh, everyone. We love hearing from you guys. Thank you for doing okay. it. Okay. Great. Well, thank you for organizing and, and everything. Yeah, definitely. All right, folks. Yeah, well, um, that. Oh, thanks, Dr. Arpy. Yeah, this is, uh, um, this has been Parker's Pensies and, uh, as always all glory to God.